Don't let the brand or the image of, of cybersecurity sway your interest. There are places for everyone in this space. It's very important and imperative that we have younger women more interested in joining the field. This is one of the areas where there is just a massive lack of talent. And so the needs for cybersecurity trained professionals relative to what are actually being produced in the world continues, that gap continues to widen. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This week, we're speaking with Karis Bragg, Executive Vice President and Chief Product Officer at F5, a multi-cloud application services and security company. Kara started her career in a technical role at Oracle, but made the decision to pivot into consultancy. She has plenty to share about her transition from an individual contributor to a leader and mentor. Kara also has a long-standing relationship with Girls Who Code and cares deeply about fostering the next generation of talent in STEM. Here's Suchi's conversation with Kara. My name is Kara Sprague. I am the chief product officer at a company called F5. Let me give a little bit of a background on F5, and then I'll get into what my role is there. So F5 is a company that manages and secures a large fraction of internet traffic. For 25 years now, we've provided solutions that do everything from load balancing to web application firewalls to identity and access management solutions, web servers, et cetera. And so a lot of the applications that customers use on their mobile phones or access through the browser, there is some sort of F5 technology sitting behind it. I've been here now for six years, and in my role as chief product officer, I run our engineering and product management and product marketing organizations. We have a product portfolio that spans three different product families, and so a lot of my time is spent understanding uh, what the cool trends are that are going to impact customers in our domains, thinking of cool solutions to offer to them, and then thinking about how do we balance the portfolio to drive growth for the company. That sounds very pivotal to everything that's happening all around us, very embedded and certainly about as technical as the roles go. Now, you were exposed to computing at a very early age. Can you tell us a little bit more about what experiences you had with computers that were sort of formative for you to get you started on your journey and bring you to where you are today? I was probably eight or nine years old when my dad brought home an x86 computer, and that was our first family computer. He would print out basic programs that I would then type back into the machine, and these were things that would produce fractals. So that was my very first exposure to coding because, you know, it's pretty easy to figure out, well, here's the parameter that changes the colors, here's the parameter that changes the number of iterations in the fractal. (laughs) I was a tinkerer from, from an early age. I became the de facto kind of computer support person in my fifth grade classes. Whenever the teacher had a problem with the computer, I was the person she'd go to to try and see if we could get it working. I took a programming course, I think, my senior year. So then when I went into undergraduate at MIT, I gravitated very easily into computer science and electrical engineering. So while it sounds like you started at an early age, you nurtured that interest and you grew it and developed it as you went through college, Was there a formal point of time when you made the decision to make it also a career in STEM or was that just an extension of sort of this gradual interest? When I was in high school, what I was really considering and what I had as my first aspiration when I was applying to schools was really to study political science and eventually go into law. 
And I wanted to marry my understanding of technology with a legal background and eventually go into some sort of policy position from there. That got changed when I didn't get into my, my first pick college. The second pick college, MIT, um, you know, you don't really go to MIT to study political science. And so that, that kind of was one of those pivot moments for me. I would say I was very, very fortunate landing at MIT. It was just a tremendous training ground for me, just an awesome, awesome atmosphere of, of entrepreneurialism and excitement about technology. And it really, really helped me flourish in terms of my understanding of engineering and computer science. That sounds like indeed one of the best, obviously, playing grounds for tech in the world and certainly one to learn from and foster that interest. Any important figures, any mentors, people who really helped shape your opinions, your confidence as you embarked on this journey in addition to the school itself? In high school, I had a math teacher that I, I particularly loved. I think another high-influence person for me was my dad. He was a lawyer by training, but he ended up teaching himself a whole bunch of math. So he taught himself calculus. He taught himself programming. He was a very good role model for me in terms of something that you want to learn. You invest time and you spend effort and you can, you can get better at it. My mom was also very formative in terms of always encouraging me and, and sharing whatever you want to do is okay by me. She gave me her confidence that, that I could do anything that I wanted to. Could you speak a little bit in your reflections about how it was like to navigate from the earlier parts of your career where perhaps you were more of an individual contributor to now really stewarding and steering an entire organization, feeling responsibility for things like product roadmaps, but also of the organization that designs and builds these products. What mindset changes has it necessitated for you? What makes you successful in this role? What did you find hard about that transition? Let me give some context on that. So when I graduated from my master's program in university, I went into a member of technical staff position at Oracle. And so I entered the engineering ranks and I was working on a team of 15 people. I determined very quickly after being in that role for just a few months that that was not what my long-term objective was going to be. My experience was I, I went to the same office every day. I worked with the same people every day. I worked broadly on the same problem every day. And I didn't feel like I was understanding the bigger picture or the broader context and really not having the level of impact that I thought and I believed that I was able to. And that for me was what drove me to pivot in my career. I, I went back to school. I went for a second master's degree in technology and public policy. And then out of that, I went into consulting. And the difference I saw when I entered consulting was your projects are, you know, somewhere between six to 12 weeks. You change your client, you change your function, um, you can change your geography, you change the people you're working with. And so just the learning curve for me was much, much more steep. And I found myself much more engaged and, and getting a much bigger picture about how does business work, what drives an organization, how do you create value, different skill sets. The mindset change as you go from being like an individual contributor or more in, more in a technical position to being more of a leader, what you want to take into it is a huge amount of curiosity and really just a curiosity about how things work, what creates value, what's important to the constituents that you're trying to serve and in the company that would be the customers. A second thing you, you want to take in there is a passion for growing people and, and for mentoring, because if you're going to be a, a leader of people, you know, what McKinsey always taught me was servant leadership, which means that you as a leader are there to really serve the people that you are leading. And, and another mindset there is being a player coach, 
meaning you have to have been on the field at one point to really understand what it's like to, to be a player. And, and that's the best position from which you're able to, to actually coach others and how to be successful. That's amazing. I know you gave us a very brief introduction to what FI's products do and where they're present. Could you tell us a little bit about the company and its culture as well and give us sort of a rounded picture on that? So F5 is a technology company. It is a company that was founded back in 1996, and it was founded at the time, obviously, of the dot-com boom. It started really taking off with the use case of helping the dot-com companies achieve availability of their websites, and doing that through introducing this thing called a load balancer, which would sit between a user trying to access the website and the actual server serving the website. Basically what it would do is say, well, is the server busy? If the server was busy, then it would look to another server to serve the same content. And so that's basically what a load balancer does. And then over time, the company evolved to offer more and more services in that line of application traffic, security capabilities, traffic steering, and a whole bunch of other um, fun and interesting things. And so up until about 2015, the only monetization approach for F5 capabilities was really selling as a perpetual hardware appliance that would sit in an on-prem data center for a customer. When I joined the company in 2017, I, I joined as part of a, um, a new, new executive team with a new CEO, and we set a course to basically serve every application anywhere, meaning that we believed fundamentally that the capabilities that F5 offers are things that are needed by applications, regardless of if they're on-prem regardless of if they're in a public cloud, um, regardless of if they're at the edge. And so we've been on a, a journey for six years transforming the company to do exactly that. Because I'm also in the same field as you are, I can understand <laughs> not only how impressive that transformational journey is just from the outcomes that you outlined and the shifts that you've managed to engineer, but can only imagine as to how grueling it must have been on the inside of it. I'd love to hear your advice now back for our audience on women who are younger, who might be interested in a career in cybersecurity, but honestly, it's not the most approachable of fields. I'm just going to come out and say this, okay? Can you speak to our listeners a little bit about what should early career women be paying attention to? How should they be thinking about it if they are interested in a career in uh, cybersecurity? It's not branded very well. If you ask AI to generate the picture of a cyber criminal... Yes. They're going to probably picture a male, uh, yes. very likely younger, probably uh, Anglo-Saxon, and maybe in a hoodie and, and hanging out in a basement. That's exactly right. It hasn't been a field that has been marketed very well or, or been made very approachable just by virtue of the fact that it felt very exclusive. I think it's imperative that we have a much more diverse and inclusive approach to cybersecurity because cybersecurity is the battleground of the future. You know, in many ways, our, our current conflicts in the world are getting fought in cyberspace. That's exactly right. And sometimes it's even hard to identify that there is a conflict. But believe me, there are real battles getting fought and won every day in cyberspace that have massive um, socioeconomic and political outcomes. In that kind of space, it's so important that we have a group of people that are working on the problems and understanding the problems that represent the people in the society that have to deal with the problems so that we have you know, a much more balanced approach. So my advice to women who are younger in career who are thinking about entering cybersecurity is don't let the brand or the image of, of cybersecurity sway your interest. There are places for everyone in this space. 
It's very important and imperative that we have younger women more interested in joining the field. There's an incredible amount of opportunity in the field. And so this is one of the areas where there is just a massive lack of talent. And so the needs for cybersecurity trained professionals relative to what are actually being produced in the world continues, that gap continues to widen. I foresee that happening for a long time to come. So it's going to be a space that's going to be in very, very high demand. And then also you can learn anything. I don't believe in fields where, where people are just generally not good at something. If you put in the time, you put in the energy to understanding it, I believe that it's something that anybody can, can partake in. Let's shift to another part of your life here. You have a longstanding and quite deep engagement with Girls Who Code. Mm-hmm. You've uh, served on their board. Let's talk a little bit about you know, the nature of your relationship with this organization. What made you get involved over here? And what kind of impact have you seen this organization achieve out there in the world? I got involved with Girls Who Code in 2015, and Reshma, who is the founder of Girls Who Code and and was the CEO at that point, she had gotten in touch with a friend of hers at McKinsey, and through that, McKinsey determined that we would do some pro bono work to help Girls Who Code with their strategic plan. And I was fortunate enough to be able to lead that work. What we did was we, we took the mission off of their website and then we turned that into numbers and math. And we said, okay, well, if this is your mission, um, let's put some metrics around how you're going to get there. And it turned into, okay, well, here's, here's the kind of level of outreach and engagement we're going to need to do in order to achieve what you say you want to do, which is gender parity in tech. Disaggregated that into a set of programs. And then over the subsequent two years, McKinsey uh, invested again in pro bono work both of those years to help with various aspects of driving that strategy forward. I was fortunate to be invited to join the Girls Who Code board from there. And and even after I left McKinsey, I, I kept the board seat. At this point, they have helped educate about 600,000 girls on tech and computer science. And so, you know, through a combination of clubs, which are targeted more to middle school and high school aged girls, as well as immersion programs, which are these two week intense coding classes, to something called College Loops, which is building community amongst um, compute-interested college alums or, or college students. They are now also helping girls enter into their first jobs in the workforce in technology. And so solving for the pipeline end-to-end. And so it's just a um, really, really cool organization, really awesome mission, and I was just very fortunate to be a part of it. That's awesome. When girls early on face that choice, let's say, to immerse themselves into STEM. I'd like to hear from you as to what do you think they need to hear, which is directly related to what might be some of the things that are off-putting to them. It's just two sides of the same coin, right? So let's talk about their entry into the pipeline. And then, of course, there's everything that Girls Who Code has done to grow and nurture that pipeline. A lot of the research says that it's as early as even fifth grade, Um, And even there's some research that argues it's third grade, where girls really start to solidify perceptions of, is this something that I could see myself in or not? And a lot of the dynamics that play out, you know, at those ages are the social aspects of it. Do I see other girls having an interest in this? What's the environment I'm set up for in terms of being able to, to fail gracefully and do so without a lot of risk? And all of those kind of psychological and sociological influences play into that and have, in many ways, created an atmosphere which is unfriendly for girls at that age. One of the things I think that has really set us back at this in in the United States is is we don't require 
any sort of computer science education as part of our core curriculum across states. Other places that have done that, uh, it evens the playing field a bit more because then everybody is required to go into it. Other things is like in terms of role modeling, in many cases, again, the stereotypical kind of person that is seen as good at coding is you see a lot of the tech founders held up as big role models like the the Larry Ellisons, the Zuckerbergs, the Bill Gates. And again, it's not a very diverse group. Anything else that you think would be valuable for our listeners to hear or just pure interesting for them to know about you? Um, I would want to just open that up to you. The way I would synthesize my approach to kind of how I spend my time, where I spend my time, who I engage with, it's, it's really with the mindset of make things better. I have optimism, and this is what I hope others can carry into their activities, is just whatever you're participating in, whoever you're engaging with, if you're in a meeting, make it better. Create more clarity. Find a way to identify the things that other people might be missing. Find a way to make somebody, somebody's day go better. Just make, make things better. So a time that you felt you were in your element, when you felt like you were in the moment where you wanted to be in the place and doing what you wanted to do, you know, however you define it. I feel like that in smaller meetings where folks are, for lack of a better term, wallowing a bit, maybe in a problem and not kind of having a sense of or consensus on how to move forward. That's a place where I I think there's a high opportunity to drive to clarity towards a direction and an outcome, bringing clarity and alignment. That's one of my superpowers. Other places where there's a lack of understanding of of how a technology trend is going to play out or how different points of data are are pointing to a specific outcome, synthesizing that and kind of helping helping navigate through a bunch of different kinds of, of information. I also just really enjoy engaging with people more junior in career and offering at least my own lived experience to try and help others navigate some of the harder points that they're having in their in their life. That was my conversation with Kara. Corinne, what did you think? The thing that really resonated with me was her optimism for the space and her enthusiasm to try to bring the next generation of women into this to this arena that I think it's extremely technical and her appealing to sort of the women that maybe are listening and saying, hey, there is a space for you and don't forget about us. That was really interesting and wonderful to hear from her. Yeah, that's true. And as she was talking about the growing importance of cybersecurity, given how this tech and now with AI, everything is so deeply embedded across enterprises and personal consumer lives. And there is a need for many, many, many more skilled engineers than this field currently has, even with all of the talent available in the world. And and so don't let that stereotype of who a cybersecurity engineer looks like get in the way of pursuing this immense amount of opportunity. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital, business, and technology. Thank you so much for listening. 